Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Joanna Drake, co-founder of Magnify Ventures, which just completed an oversubscribed $52 million fund one. Prior to Magnify, Joanna invested through her prior firm, Core Ventures, as well as part of the Broadway Angels Group. Joanna is also the co-founder of Raise Global, the leading emerging manager summit whose mission is to accelerate the next generation of fund entrepreneurs by both connecting them to LPs and also providing the necessary education around building a firm. The Raise Summit is also something I've been part of since the inception in 2015, and I've just been so thrilled to see the impact and growth it's created for emerging managers. Given Joanna's background as a two-time fund entrepreneur and a Raise co-founder, we went deep into all components of building a firm. For anyone starting a new fund, this is a must listen, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Joanna. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni is an investment analytics company dedicated to improving private capital markets. Omni's proprietary technology digitizes hard-to-track, unstructured data from private transaction agreements and organizes it in a structured database through an intuitive dashboard. For investors of all sizes, the insights that are provided by this data improve the manager's ability to build strategy and make better decisions. Today, OmniTrack's data from over 250,000 private market transactions to provide anonymous, aggregated market benchmarks. I'm also incredibly excited how Omni's solution helps fund managers provide more insightful and accurate reporting to their investors. To learn more, check them out at www.omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Listeners of Venture Unlocked can sign up for 20% off when you mention Venture Unlocked. Joanna, it's so great to see you, and thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I, I think, Samira, it's been almost a decade since we first met in your First Republic Bank Silicon Valley office when you were our banker at Core Ventures Group. So it's so fun years later, after so many years and initiatives of collaboration, to be here under new brand umbrellas, both of us. It's it's hard to imagine that it's been a decade, and yeah, it, it does come full circle. And there's been so many changes, both in the market and, and and also what you've done, which I'm really excited to dig into. You've been a two time fund entrepreneur. Uh, you were the founder of which now is one of the most attended uh, GPLP conferences and raise, which I remember back in 2015. You know, starting it and having those initial conversations. So there's so many great insights we're going to be able to extract. But before we get into Magnify, the origin story, as well as some of your learnings as a two-time fund entrepreneur, why don't we start off with your background? We'd love to hear maybe how you started off uh, your career and then really the journey into not only tech, but venture investing. Sure. Well, I have a couple chapters in my back pocket. Uh, I initially began my career as a management consultant with Booz Allen. was fortunate to work with media companies and then tech companies. So when I got bit by the startup bug initially, I focused on building venture-backed media tech companies, had three specifically, all with great exits, so really learned how to build companies from scratch. I had a short stint as a CEO of a public mobile company, and then I became inspired to transition into venture capital when I became an operator angel with the Broadway Angels Group and ended up forming Core Ventures Group with my former partner. And then more recently, in the last couple of years, launched Magnify Ventures. 
And I love the story about Magnify and you and Julie starting the firm together. And I, I think the uh, origin of you two meeting was at a at a conference. You're taking a car ride home. You start to discuss and get to know each other and become friends. But given that you had been part of big corporations and partnerships, you also know the importance of building the right type of partnership, especially for an investment firm that might last 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years. Tell us a little bit about that journey with Julie in the early days to ultimately get to decide, hey, let's do this together. What were some of the common characteristics and traits that you were looking for in a partner? We met at an Uber at the Equity Summit uh, a couple of years back as we were heading to the airport, struck up a conversation, and we found pretty quickly in the 15 minutes that we had sitting next to one another that not only were we both originally Midwesterners now transitioned into venture investors, but that we had both worked for some of the most impactful global visionaries in the world and had many more shared interests. So when she decided to leave Pivotal to stand up a new firm and she reached out, she was seeking a entrepreneurial investor who had not only experienced company building, but also early stage investing and shared values. So I think that was a pretty short list of folks. And I was fortunate to reconnect and continue that Uber conversation. But as we began to explore working together, for me, having built many companies, formed long-term partnerships before, I came at the question around partner fit with a couple of important filters. I think the first one was shared values. And of course, I've listened to many of your podcasts where people call out values as the first important criteria. So it sounds a bit obvious and perhaps even cliche, but I think it was really important for both of us to take the time not only to state our values to see if we had overlap, but to actually spend a lot of time illustrating how we put those values to work. And I think as we've come to know that we have a long list of shared values, but at the top are probably four. The first I would call out is empathy. Um, and that's important for us very specifically be because of our unique investment thesis, which we'll talk about today. But since so much of what we're doing is around our relationship with founders and partners and our investors, all focused on unburdening families, empathy is under everything that we do. The second is integrity. We want to be known for doing what we say we will, living up to our commitments and not hiding anything, being happy to be transparent. The third is around collaboration, maybe because we're both from the Midwest, but we really wanted to both have a sense of humility in all that we do, but also a sense of humor so that we would look forward to working together and having some fun. And then finally, work ethic, as you know, being a venture capitalist is a 24-7 job and we have a very tall order and big ambition as a firm. So we really knew we were going to have to hustle and work hard every day. And then on top of those shared values, uh, it was important for both of us to make sure that we had shared assumptions on our firm fundamentals. Not only that there was mutual excitement to prove out a new thesis, but very importantly, that we were committed to outsized financial returns in addition to social impact and that we had alignment on the investment strategy that we were going to deploy, really focused on a shared vision for how big a fund was necessary and where at what stages we should be deploying capital. And then finally, just committing to building a long-term franchise and growing out a team that could really be a pioneer in the spaces that we are working. What you're describing not only is an extreme alignment 
from a values perspective, making sure that the personalities do complement each other in terms of building an investment firm, but also this long-term vision of what the firm is going to look like. I feel like you've had so many interesting conversations with managers across the years through things like the Raise Conference. I'd be curious if you found any other common characteristics of healthy partnerships and also maybe anything typical of partnerships that haven't worked. Well, I think healthy partnerships come when there's shared values, but very different, both life experiences and professional skills to complement one another. If everything is the same, then there's not that amplifying factor uh, that can lead to better problem solving and better impact and results. Uh, one of the funny things for my former partnership with Shinya Akimine at Core Ventures Group is after we worked together for a couple of years, on paper, we might have looked a little similar. We both went to Stanford. He was at McKinsey. I was at Booz Allen. We both had built several venture-backed startups, et cetera. But because he was much more of an engineer and had also oddly spent a lot of time in sales, he came at problem solving from very different business sectors and models than I did as a former media tech entrepreneur and company builder. So we found that we really didn't have a lot of shared vocabulary when it came to building certain companies. And we would have um, very animated conversations explaining our points of view, sometimes that were even uncomfortable. And he later confessed that he was back to grinding his teeth because it was a lot of um, work understanding one another and how we came to assumptions. But ultimately, over the years, I think that led to much better decisions in terms of who we were backing and much better support for our portfolio companies because we had very different points of view that we could bring to the table, work through, and then come up with a shared recommendation. And anything, I, I guess, on the uh, the other side, is sort of the second part of that question, in, in terms of anything you've observed, whether it be in, in small partnerships, large partnerships, across investment firms that historically have not worked, that have either created dynamics that are actually not good for investment decisions, you know, returns from an LP perspective, or simply just create environments that are not conducive to really building a long-term franchise. Have you seen anything in particular from your, your standpoint? There are a lot of listeners here that are thinking about, you know, starting a fund or partnering with somebody. And I'm curious if there's anything you would observe as potential red flags or red flags that you've observed. That's a good question. Um, I always am an optimistic and a people person. So I'm looking for the positive attributes that lead to success as opposed to the negatives that bring down firms or d deter um, results. But I would say as a common theme, I think those partnerships that do best are made up of partners who are really committed to collaborating for the mutual outcome of their portfolio companies and their investors, rather than building their own reputation and their own careers and their own track records. And so one of the things that I love working with Julie, um, one of the reasons why I love working with Julie is because I think we're constantly trying to make decisions on behalf of our investors and our team and our companies, and less about who takes credit for what or what kind of experience are we individually trying to have? But I think the collaborative spirit is the most important. And, and as you look at growing um, both your partnership as well as the team over the years, how do you 
constantly ensure that, you know, from a culture and value standpoint, things are continuing to stay aligned. Are there certain things that you do as a firm to just ensure the health of the, uh, the overall partnership? That's such an interesting question in the time of Zoom. We are pretty unique, I think, in that we, while well, we met in person at that equity summit way back when, and we spent many months exploring and defining our investment thesis and working with uh, Pivotal Ventures, which became our anchor LP in person. We also spent a lot of time ultimately in final negotiations and launching the firm over Zoom because the pandemic had settled in. So we really had to redefine how do we continue to build our partnership and get to know each other. And as we brought on our CFO and our executive uh, project manager, how do we build a cohesive culture over Zoom with very few touch points in person? And I would say uh, that we do that in some pretty standard ways, but it's worked well. I think we've effectively um, built a cohesive culture with less touch points in real life than we would like because of the pandemic by really constantly sharing all aspects of our work in a regular fashion and really having taking the time to challenge one another to really deeply understand how we're coming to decision points as a team as a whole and to probably overshare information both on a personal level and a professional level and that is building trust and building up our culture based on the shared values that I described at the outset. Yeah, and you you alluded this to this uh, a little bit earlier in that you know when you're building a, an investment firm, especially as an early stage VC, that you know what we would define still in the emerging manager phase, it is a twenty four seven. And that twenty four seven, you're spending a lot of time with your partners, with your portfolio companies, with your LPs, and it's really building a company at the end of the day where you're not only making investment decisions, but you're also building the team. And in one area that a lot of people understate is the amount of time that you're actually spending raising capital. Raising capital for emerging managers has largely been a, a black box because it's very difficult. It's a long path. It's opaque. And I want to go back before we go into your insights on raising Magnify One, going back to 2015 when Raise was started. What did you see as the main challenge and what did you want to really provide through the uh, the Raise platform to help people raise in a more efficient way? Yes. Well, thank you for prompting the question about the origin of Raise. That also is a story. Uh, my partner, Shinya and I at Core Ventures Group, we had raised a very small proof point fund. Uh, our 2012 vintage fund was just about $6 million. So that wasn't that hard to raise. But when we set about raising our second fund, which was originally an ambition of somewhere between 30 and 40 million as a target, we became very frustrated because we realized as former entrepreneurs who had a playbook for fundraising for startups, essentially you run a process. You have a list of venture firms that you can tier based on what you see as their fit, you, you set a timeline, you move through the investors in waves, and then you get to a decision either way, whether you're going to get the company funded and off the ground. But when it came to fundraising as an emerging fund manager without an established financial track record yet, we realized that you could spend years taking meetings and there was very little incentive to actually give us constructive feedback and quick answers. 
And so as we faced a very non-transparent and large and growing ecosystem from high net worth individuals to family offices to endless institutional investors, we realized that we really needed a breakthrough of some sort. And that came when we sat down in a series of lunches with my long-term friend and entrepreneurial fund uh, fund builder, Ben Black. He uh, took a couple meetings with us. He was kind enough to not only give us constructive feedback on our pitch, but he really gave us his own framework that he had developed around the LP ecosystem. And not only that, but he picked up the phone and he called many of his LPs and made a recommendation that they should take a meeting with us. Several of them actually made commitments of up to a million dollars after one phone call. So strong was his reference point. So we were really grateful on our end. And then on his end, he realized, why has no one created a trusted community and a vetted playbook that we can share with all these amazing individuals who are wanting to build new funds? So he called me back after several of these sessions and said, hey, do you want to start a conference and uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an executor and he's a bit of a visionary. So we knew that partnership uh, set of attributes would work well together. And we went ahead and started planning the first raise summit where we would bring together LPs interested in backing emerging fund managers and GPs who are working on first, second or third time funds. And frankly, we had no idea if anybody was going to show up. But as you'll recall, Samira, because you were great enough to be our first sponsoring partner and help us build from the grounds up, raise summit. Um, that first morning, even though we had sold out our GP slots, people were coming to crash the conference. So that was an early signal we were on to something. And fast forward seven years later, yes, it has become the go-to annual conference that we're quite proud of. Yeah, and, it, and it's grown so dramatically. I think last year there was over 600 people with over 300 uh, limited partners actually showing up. So clearly not only the, the growth of the brand, but also the signaling of the growth of the emerging manager market and the number of limited partners that are actually interested in backing new firms that are forming that you know have unique sort of focuses and do provide, in many cases, outlier performance. As you think about, you know, going back then to Magnify One, going even to the beginning of this conversation, you and Julie really figuring out that the two of you were very complimentary in not only the values, but really the type of firm you wanted to build. I would presume that there were so many insights that you gained through running those raised conferences, talking to so many LPs and GPs and going through what sometimes are very painful journeys of raising capital and applying it to how you are going to plan raising fund one, maybe what we can do is start with a very basic question of like the playbook and that you've defined in your head of how do you go about raising a firm or fund one, given that many people that are raising fund one have, have never actually raised capital, even people that are, are spin outs at from large firms, they may have never been part of the fundraising a process. So tell us a little bit about some of the key learnings and how you apply that in terms of that, that the type of playbook for your first, um, you know, raise for under magnify. Yes. Delighted to take you through that. Um, and some of the learn learnings seem obvious, but it's worth stating them because as I mentioned, we've so many times seen emerging fund managers spend, uh, could be up to two years taking meetings and not getting close to their target. So I'm always really delighted to share what I've learned to help accelerate the success of others. 
But it comes down to, I think the first step is focusing your energies on target LPs that really have the best fit for your fund. And as you well know, I think you've collected your own data, but together at Raise, we've collected data that shows that depending upon the year, somewhere between 70 to 85% of the LPs behind first and second time fund managers come from high net worth offices or family offices. So first and foremost, just recognizing that you can meet with an endowment or a pension fund to establish long-term relationships, but they're likely not to join you in your first or second time fund. So really focus the energies on the best profile that has, from a data perspective, proven to be a fit. And once you've done that, really roll up your sleeves and do your homework before bothering to take any meeting. And by that, I mean, in our case, the most expedient and timely meetings we had in terms of planning our LP target lists or sitting down and comparing notes with other GPs who have been in market recently, and maybe even your existing LPs, to go another level or deeper on product market fit. A, from a timing perspective, are the LPs currently deploying capital into new funds? B, do they have capacity for new funds at all? And can they make a decision within your time frame? Is there a fund fit? Because they all have individual criteria uh, that are gating or policies. And just as an analogous exercise, have they invested in funds that look like yours? So for example, you know, for us, we needed to find LPs that wanted to back GPs who were focused on predominantly seed and series A investments. We didn't have a concern around being a single GP, of course, which is a relevant question if you're a first-time fund manager on your own. Um, we had to think about geographic requirements because we're predominantly focused on North America and not international investments. Is diversity important to the LPs? In our case, have they ever backed two female GPs? And then finally, of course, is there alignment on the investment fo focus? For our um, for Magnify Ventures, we found a really good fit with high net worth individuals and family offices, foundations, and strategic investors who have a general or specific passion and expertise in areas like childcare, education, thinking through the future of work for working parents, or deep domain expertise, for example, in forging new grounds and aging innovation. So those were specific areas of focus. And then tactically, when it comes to getting the meeting and what to do after the first meeting, we found that warm intros from respected GPs or founders in their existing portfolios were the best intros. And we're fortunate enough to have very generous intros starting with our Pivotal Ventures uh, network, but also incredibly gracious recommendations from top GPs across our network. And once you get the meeting afterwards, if all of the signs around product market fit are there, then I would advise really, you know, unbegrudgingly roll up your sleeves again and do the hard work to go through the cycles with each LP. We found that it was important for some of our LPs to talk about impact frameworks. We found that several wanted to really spend cycles getting to know us and building trust, not only in our investment thesis and our experience, but also just us as individuals. Those are the range of we've seen in the marketplace of interest that specific um, to each individual LP. Uh, one other area of fundraising strategy that we found to work quite well was warehousing. We had the benefit of a budget of capital to deploy before 
we closed our fund. So we actually went about actively and perhaps aggressively investing. In fact, by the time we closed our fund in April of this year, we already had seven investments. So those investments not only proved that we could source great deals with great founding teams, but they helped us to illustrate our investment thesis, which was quite uh, useful and important. And then finally, because of the markets we're in, I think it's really important for any emerging fund manager to constantly take stock of what the market is telling them and not be afraid to change your fundraising strategy as you're learning more. So for example, I think, especially in these tumultuous times when it's actually harder to raise new funds right now, if the market is telling you that you're going after too ambitious a size of fund or that your investment thesis is off, don't be afraid to change it. And I'll give you a specific example. When we were going to raise Core Ventures Group Fund 2, um, our, ambitious was in, our ambition was initially 30 to $40 million, but frankly, it was just taking us so long to get to those targets. So we realized that we could still pursue a diversified portfolio and align with our construction model by closing on a $20 million fund, which we did. And happily, that fund now is on the same trajectory as Core Ventures Group 1, which 10 years in has 3.3x distributed capital. So we're feeling very good about not being overambitious on the size of the funds, but really being able to prove uh, high quality deals with great ultimate outcomes overall the, across the portfolio. Certainly a lot to unpack there. An area that I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper on is this concept of listening to the market along the fundraising journey. And it's more topical than ever right now, given that the market has shifted so violently over the last year, and many fund managers set their targets, started their fundraise, maybe before November 2021. And now we're sitting in a place where the market has cooled to a point where it no longer appears they're going to hit the target. And they've started to write checks. I know you did that as well. But what advice would you give to somebody that you know is listening to the market and understands that they're not going to reach target, may have to change fund size target, but also have to balance the portfolio construction that they've already started, which may have been aligned with a larger fund. As I mentioned, you know, you if you're going to change your fund strategy, particularly around the size, I think you may have to recalibrate your construction model. We were fortunate with our Magnify Ventures fundraising for our first fund that within nine months, we were able to surpass our target. We closed at 52 million. Our target was 50 million. So we actually didn't have to revisit our construction model. Of course, we have an eye on it and are watching the markets and are aware that um, prices are coming down in a very positive way. So we may be able to actually back even more founders than we originally thought. So that's a positive adjustment on our end. But I think harking back to the core ventures group example that I gave you, where we originally were starting out with a 30 to 40 million, but ended up at 20 million. We ultimately wrote slightly smaller check sizes, but we were able to continue to execute one of our fundamental strategies, which was a one-to-one follow-on investment model. If in fact, our companies were showing the right progress against milestones when it came to a series A, we were predominantly seed investors. And that ultimately led to, has led to a a constructive execution model, even if the target size was almost halved. So I think, um, you know, it's a complex set of levers one has to assemble when you're building a construction model. 
um, including the overall fund size, the follow-on investment strategy, the ownership positions that you're targeting. And the bigger the fund, of course, the more the more careful you have to be about all of those levers. Exactly. And, and I do think that um, there's this concept that I believe was originally coined by Beezer over at Sapphire of minimum viable fund size. So thinking about not only what your target is, but what is the minimum you need to raise to execute on a given strategy? And, you know, having that in mind, even if you think about, you know, along the way that, hey, maybe we need to decrease the, you know, overall target, understanding exactly what the minimum fund size should be to be able to meet, you know, what your LPs or at least your early LPs have signed up to, I think is really important. The other aspect, just, um, you know, I, I wanted to maybe highlight the tough thing, I think, for a lot of managers, if they go out with a 40 or 50 or $60 million target and realize six months in they're at 10 and, you know, assessing that, well, maybe it is right to actually decrease the size of the target, given what the market is telling us, is this fear of a negative signal. We came out with the 60 and then six months later, our deck materials are now 30 or 40. What would you advise managers when they're faced with those type of circumstances? I worry less about the negative signal. I think, you know, it's most important when you're establishing an, a new fund to just get in market, start making investments, assemble a portfolio, show if you have a unique and differentiated investment thesis, illustrate it with the companies that you're backing. Ideally, you also have a differentiated strategy around supporting those companies. So you can start building that collaborative track record with your founders and build your reputation amongst the entrepreneur community. All of those um, proof points to building a long-term franchise have to be established somehow. So I just worry at the end of the day a lot less about getting to an articulated fund size and instead getting in market and proving your value and your uniqueness because it's a, a really noisy market out there. As we know, you've been tracking over the years, Samir, just what an explosion of emerging fund managers there are. And so it's important to get in the game and establish yourself more than it is to get to a certain target size. And, and we experienced that several times in, in our history as Core Ventures Group. The um, notion of, of course, you know, re resizing your target is one thing. But of course, anyone that's launching a, a fund, you want to you know, pull the right levers to increase the probability of meeting that target in the first place. And you mentioned warehousing and having some deals that you could really show people that were going to be in the fund before any commitments were made. Obviously, that's a, a very um, strong and influential lever that we've seen work many, many times. Not everyone can do that either because the GPs can't. They don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to warehouse or they don't have a single LP that's willing to warehouse. Are there other levers that you've seen? And, you know, there's a lot of discussion across emerging managers, and it's been on Twitter around things like reducing economics or providing an anchor with a piece of the GP. Are there other levers that you've seen to be successful in helping people really, you know, get to a, a quicker first close? Yes. If you don't have the capital to begin warehousing investments officially as a emerging fund manager, I do think you can leverage an angel track record. So even writing very small checks as an individual into companies that are led by great founders. So to prove out your sourcing ability, but also to illustrate the types of 
companies that you want to be backing and the types of support that you're going to provide as an investor, I think those angel track records can be very meaningful. And we've seen over the years at Raise when we solicit submissions to um, from emerging fund managers to get gain one of the top spotlights at the annual conference, oftentimes we've had you know, incredible stories break through of prolific angel investors who are able to assemble a track record, which is rather astounding and builds confidence in really terrific LPs to back them in their first funds. So I think the angel investment track record and or warehousing, even if there's, if you made a first close on a substantially smaller amount of capital than your ultimate target, but you're able to deploy Checks maybe that aren't at the construction model size that you've modeled long term, but just to, as we talked about previously, illustrate your thesis and get in market. We were fortunate at Magnify Ventures, as I mentioned, that we were able to make seven investments before we closed. The first investment is in a company called Papa Marketplace to marry gig economy workers with elders aging in place. And that investment originally came at a Series A stage. We followed on B, C, and fast forward to last year, they closed a Series D. So we were very fortunate to have a unicorn in our midst valued at $1.4 billion in a SoftBank-led round as we were fundraising. That was an extremely useful tool. But frankly, that coupled with a wide range of in other portfolio companies that were able to in- illustrate the four investment buckets that we have our eyes on at Magnify Ventures really did the best job of illustrating to our LPs the kinds of companies we wanted to work with at the right stage. It's actually really interesting because you mentioned this um, great lever and I think I've seen this work really well, you know, the warehouse, even at small amounts. So people can actually understand the type of deals that you're looking at, type of companies especially if they're obviously very closely aligned with the, the theme of the, um, you know, the firm itself. And in your case, you had this amazing uh, company that really broke out during the fundraise. So many funds have come to market over the last five years. In fact, I think the last count we had was over 2000 active US micro VC slash emerging managers. And an area that we've seen exceptional growth is with underrepresented managers, people of color, female-led firms. And many of these individuals don't come from your close-knit networks where they come with a number of different LP relationships, other GP relationships. A struggle often is not only doing the product market fit of LPs and understanding which ones to go after, it's the actual process of even identifying LPs, because the world of high net worth and family offices is so opaque. It is finding needles in a haystack. Some have worked on things like, you know, 506C offerings through things like AngelList, which allow you to publicly market. And I, I, there was a guest on our show, Matt Conwell, that I think did a great job on that, built a great Twitter following, raised his fund effectively through Twitter, but still ended up talking to over a thousand people that were inbound through some of his, um, you know, Twitter interactions. What advice would you give to somebody just starting off that doesn't have these deeply embedded networks? And how do you even go about identifying LPs in the first place? Well, once again, you have given a great opportunity to plug Raise as a conference and a community. Thank you for that being a partner all along the way. Um, As you know, when we joined forces on Raise, um, 
part of our theory and our commitment was to help change the face of venture. So we all know the dismal numbers around diversity amongst venture firms. Over the years, it's gotten a, a bit better, but it's still a real challenge and opportunity. I think the good news is number one on the LP front, you know, there's increasing body of data that shows that diversity leads to better problem solving and better business results. And that's true, of course, in the venture world. So we now have a lot of uh, analyses and examples and data proof points to show that diverse partnerships will outperform non-diverse partnerships. So full stop on that fact. That's what's happened in the world. Meanwhile, at Raise as a community, we've been able to show over the years that the best of the best emerging fund managers truly do have diverse partners in their mix, whether it's females or representatives from underrepresented minority communities within the venture world. And I think as of last year, over 82% of the emerging fund managers that joined us at Raise actually fell into that category. So we are changing the face of venture. They are outperforming. How to tap those networks? One opportunity is to come to Raise, but also just to leverage all of the content that we're publishing on the website to work with groups like yourselves that allocate to get access to high net worth individuals or family offices that are seeking to place capital into emerging fund managers because they know as a category it outperforms. And then frankly, just to reach out and talk to established fund managers who have been through the cycles, who have built multiple funds, and many of them are graciously willing to sit down and give you a short list and make some introductions and help. I know I know we do that all the time and we've been the benefit on our end as well. It's great advice and and it's something that we've seen consistently work too in terms of going after some of these top tier investors. In fact, we had an emerging manager that raised a $20 million fund of which 15 million came through a single conversation with a top tier fund manager who said, I love what you're doing. I'm going to invest myself and I'm going to make 15 introductions. And they did that. And so there are ways to, of course, do it. It, at the end of the day, is a very difficult process, especially in today's world where the markets have turned. I actually do want to fast forward to where we are today, because you were able to successfully, of course, raise not only a fund, but an oversubscribed fund. And you do have certain characteristics, of course, that are underrepresented, you know, female-led firm, going after what some you know would look at as very niche firms that are focused on sectors or niches sometimes fall into the bucket of is it too narrow i'm just curious about the experience that you had in your own fundraising especially because so much was done over zoom well i have to share um or i should confess samira that when julie and i first started talking we picked up the uber conversation as she was uh beginning the process of stepping out of Pivotal Ventures and launching a new fund, I was a little skeptical about the specific investment thesis to stand back because I don't think we've defined it. But Julie and our colleagues at Pivotal Ventures had spent a lot of time analyzing the burden of caregiving in America all along the life cycle from childcare to caring for elders. And they were really understanding the tremendous economic and social impact on women's well-being, their lack of professional advancement and the implications for their families. And they came to identify what is now defined as a $648 billion care economy, bigger than the U.S. pharmaceutical industry, 
um, that led to their desire to catalyze innovation in the sector through a dedicated early stage venture firm. They'd done all that work. And as I started, when I first started speaking to them as a formal, former generalist investor, I was originally skeptical that that focus was too narrow. We didn't have the sizing yet of the $648 billion. But as I dug in and the more we explored, I became convinced myself that this was so massive and that venture as an industry had perhaps ignored or at least not recognized, and that it was truly at the intersection of several macro forces, even before the pandemic hit. As we formulated how we articulated that investment strategy, it was very important to us that it not be perceived as niche or an impact strategy, but a massive market opportunity to deliver outsized returns for our prospective LPs. And we began many conversations with prospective LPs where there was that similar skepticism that I had myself. But gradually, as we walked through our research and demonstrated illustrations of great founders tackling these opportunities, inspired by their own lived experiences, we began to see, mostly over Zoom, the individual sitting in the LP decision-making seat resonating with our investment thesis. And really because at the end of the day, we are all part of a modern American family that has some caregiving burden. I'm a poster child of the sandwich generation. We've got up to four kids in the house and a father in Chicago that requires caregiving support all every day. And so we're all experiencing behind the Zoom what it means that technology innovation has not crept up into the household to help us with caregiving and household management. So all the questions that I was asking at the beginning, I found that LP started asking themselves, and that led to many of them, while they were originally skeptical, jumping on board pretty quickly. And that's ultimately why we were able to oversubscribe when we were in market only for nine months. But some of those questions were, you know, as an industry, why have we spent so much capital on building mobile games and enterprise software? Why is the childcare industry still so expensive and inefficient? And how is it that our parents have so little content, tech tools, and community to age independently and more joyfully? So those, those are the kind of questions that we surfaced together with our LPs and over time built conviction around the power of this focus and the perspective, the prospect for returns. There's been so much, of course, change in LPs' minds because there was a time not too long ago where the vast majority of funds were generalist funds. The question that often comes up with LPs is not only, you know, if you're theme or sector focused, is it too narrow or is it large enough to, you know, be able to scale? But it's also how does it relate to sourcing, picking, and winning? And, and some of those are very obvious, I think, in my mind. If you're really dedicated to toward a certain theme, you can be very narrow in terms of your research, looking at opportunities, getting really deep in, the, in those networks. But what have you found from a founder standpoint? Because you did work at a generalist fund, you know, with Core Ventures Group. Do you see a material difference in the ability to win when you do have a theme or sector-focused strategy relative to being a, a generalist? It's a great benefit, um, as I'm experiencing now with our specific focus versus my previous um, generalist firm, we're finding that across our networks, and Julie and I are coming at uh, coming to Magnify with very different networks and backgrounds, but we are fast become known as the 
the pioneer firm that's focused on the specific theme to the point that we get a lot of deal flow from other entrepreneurs, investors, and even LPs who say, hey, here's another parenting related company or an elder care company. And Magnify should be the one that is on your shortlist to talk to out of the gate. So it's really helping us with our sourcing strategy. We also specifically crafted partnerships that would not only also help with the sourcing, but be a differentiated proposition for founders when they were making the decision whether or not they wanted to work with us. So for example, we have a relationship with an IDO company called The Holding Company, which is dedicated to world-class design support for caregiving innovation. And they work with many of our portfolio companies every year to accelerate their early product design work. So that's a unique offering that we have developed specifically around our investment thesis. We also forged a relationship with EHIR, the Employee Health Innovation Roundtable membership organization, with leading employers from around the globe who are really interested in getting closer to innovation around benefit offerings for their employees. And they work with us every summer on a summer academy that helps accelerate the success of startups that are selling into large employers. So those are just an example of some of the programmatic and partnership offerings that we've assembled as Magnify Ventures. It's not only continuing to increase our reputation amongst far-flung founders out there starting to work on some of these problems, but also helps us win the deals. And as you think about these different sort of areas, and it's very clear that you've built the overall infrastructure to really be a successful investor, but also be able to alter outcomes of these companies that you're investing in, given your deep knowledge of this space and some of the relationships that have been built invariably because a lot of the investments you're making are at the seed, maybe pre-seed level where you're leading the round. There's also the ongoing help you have to provide entrepreneurs in terms of downstream financing, which of course the downstream financing market has definitely tightened since uh, you know 2020 and 21. How do you think about ensuring that these companies can get downstream financing in a world that not only is tougher but may not understand this sector as well as you know your, as you mentioned areas like crypto or gaming or traditional enterprise? Well, the good news is that there is, I think, the pandemic unfortunately has been a marketing friend of ours because the burden on American households in regards to caregiving for little kids, elders, mental health, et cetera, is just so clear right now that I think employers have sat up and had to worry about their employees. And so every day in the headlines, uh, we know that we have to solve for this problem as a country or economically, we're going to be in more and more, we're going to have bigger and bigger economic consequences. So as a result, that narrative out there in the market writ large has really helped all of our companies in regards to educating about caregiving technology innovations and the values that their companies can ultimately have. But just practically as early stage investors, yes, we are constantly developing later stage investment uh, relationships on behalf of our founders. The good news is we have many of them coming inbound, wanting to double click on our portfolios now that they understand this larger theme in the marketplace. And one of the um, wonderful things that Papa has done for us, in, in addition to being a great, uh, having great market impact in terms of helping families uh, support their elders 
aging independently and more joyfully is they have become a category leader in regards to later stage investment raising and uh, really broke out to show just how big this market is and that significant later stage investors like a SoftBank or a Tiger Global will step up and be very interested in joining later stage rounds. It certainly seems to me that all of this is just accelerating now, especially as we look at this new economy that includes more remote work. It includes so much more that's happening in in the world that really pertains to mental health. And so I do think that downstream investors certainly are starting to really understand not only the theme itself, but the size and potential of the, the opportunity. It's great to see not only all the growth that you've had, but all the work that you've done for the community through platforms like Raise, which now today, this year is year seven, but really appreciate you coming by, providing your insights, not only in how you think about your own firm, but really some of the insights to help other emerging managers. So again, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Our doors are always open, Samir. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joanna. To learn more about her or Magnify Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detail notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.